Welcome back to the Air Power and International Security Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Richards, and today I have Dr. Cassandra Steer on the show to talk about how international humanitarian law regulates activity in space. Dr. Steer is a global authority on this subject. She is the Deputy Director of the Australian National University's Institute for Space and has published widely on the application of LOAC, or the Law of Armed Conflict, and the use of force in space. She's also acted as a consultant to the Australian, Canadian and US governments on these issues. So I'll be asking Cassandra how restricting IHL is when it comes to operating and from space, how space laws and norms are formed, how effective they are at regulating not only states but also commercial enterprises in space, and what the biggest challenges are to space laws. These questions are massively important if we are to understand how space power may go on to shape future military operations on planet Earth. They're also fascinating subjects. So with no further ado, here is the excellent Dr. Cassandra Steer talking all about space laws. Hi, Cassandra. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us today about space power and uh, the laws that apply in space. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we start talking in more detail, can you give us a rough outline of the major legislations that uh, apply to space and that restrict or, or try and restrict activity in space in some way? Yeah, so there are five core space treaties that all come from the Cold War era. So obviously the time in which the Soviets and the US were the predominant, uh, well, the beginning, the only space players, there were the predominant space players throughout the Cold War and pretty much right up until the 1990s. So the five treaties that were negotiated um, cover, so the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which is kind of like a constitution for space. It puts down a framework, it puts down values, it puts down um, some kind of general guiding but very important binding um, principles. Uh, so things like um, the moon and all natural entities in space, celestial bodies, um, must be used exclusively for peace, peaceful purposes, um, though that does allow for military activities as long as you're not using space for aggression, for an aggressive war, which is unlawful under international law anyway. Um, no state can claim any sovereignty in space. All activities have to be in accordance with international law, and that's a really important provision because what that does is basically export whole bodies of pre-existing international law into space, including laws of armed conflict, environmental law, state responsibility, treaty law. There's whole bodies of law that govern every activity in space. Um, the Outer Space Treaty also does something very important in terms of state responsibility. So it says that the state, the country under whose jurisdiction something's been launched, is responsible under international law, whether that activity in space is governmental or commercial. Um, and so we'll say a little bit more shortly about what that means for, for domestic space law. Um, and some important things about you have to operate with due regard. You have to let others know if you're going to do something that's about to impact the space environment. So it's a kind of constitution, and that's the best way to think about it. It doesn't regulate very specific activities in a granular way. Then we've got the Liability Convention, which fleshes out a little bit about um, who who's liable if there is damage caused in space and then you have to prove there's some kind of fault versus who's liable if a space activity causes damage on Earth or in, in the air, so you know, during launch or a bit of debris lands. Um, and it comes back to the, the launching state. 
We have the Registration Convention, which um, obliges states to register every single launch under their jurisdiction in a national registry, and also to register with the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs in an international registry. And that's an attempt to get some kind of tracking mechanism about who's launching what, where, why, <laughs> um, and where it's orbiting. Uh, and, and that has certain degrees of success. Um, then we have a treaty called the Return and Rescue Agreement, uh, and that was negotiated very much to ensure that, again, think about the time in which these treaties emerged in the Cold War. If a piece of a spacecraft or a space object lands on the territory of another state, the, whether that's space debris or an accident or if it's an astronaut, that object or that astronaut has to be repatriated back to the, the state of origin. So that's about assisting astronauts in distress who have a very special status in international law, and it's also about protecting technology. So at the time, the, the Soviets and the Americans were a bit worried about if a piece of American technology landed on Soviet territory, would they want to study it and learn about US capabilities or would they have to repatriate it? So that still applies today. We've just had a piece of space debris land in Australia on a farm um, that belongs to SpaceX. And so there is an obligation actually to repatriate that back to the US. Um, and then the final of the five core space treaties is called the Moon Agreement. And that was an attempt, so that was the last of the five in 1979. It only has 18 countries that have signed it. And none of those countries were space-faring nations when they signed it. Australia's a signatory the Netherlands is, and then you've got countries like Philippines, Morocco, so not the biggest space players. And that was an attempt to, um, in foreseeing what was likely to be an issue in the future if countries or, or entities want to start exploring the moon or perhaps mining the moon, that there has to be some kind of international regime established to govern that um, and that the moon is given the status of the province, um, or sorry, the common heritage of all mankind, which comes from the Antarctic Treaty. But because only 18 countries have signed on to that, it's, it is limited in the kind of impact that it's going to have on the very imminent activities on the moon that we're going to see in the next five to 10 years. So those are our five core space treaties. I mentioned that whole bodies of international law also apply to space by virtue of that provision of the Outer Space Treaty. And then the fact that um, the Outer Space Treaty puts the responsibility on states in fact, most of the space law that we have is at the domestic level. So countries, because they're responsible under international law, are obliged also under that treaty to authorise and continually supervise every activity under their jurisdiction. So they put in place licensing laws. They put in place um, you know, the UK Space Act, for instance. Um, any UK company that wants to, or government entity that wants to um, uh, launch or operate something in space, no matter where it's launched from, has to get a licence from the UK. If it's being launched in the US, it also needs to get various licenses from the US. Um, and those licenses have all sorts of things in them. In Australia, our, our um, Space Act has things in it about um, environmental impact. Um, they're starting to think about whether they should introduce things about how, it's, how it might impact cultural heritage if it's an Indigenous country. So it's going to be different in each country. Um, the US has the most domestic space laws and the most different kinds of government bodies regulating space. Um, the UK is um, conversely a very centralised country, so it's actually much simpler to um, negotiate your way through the legislation if you're applying for a licence. And that has to do slightly with um, governance styles in general in those countries, but also with the choices that have been made about how to, how to regulate space activities. So the domestic space law is just as important, perhaps in some cases more important, than that international space law.
And then on top of that, we also have some non-binding um, instruments around things like sustainability, um, debris mitigation, uh, and very recently around responsible behaviours in space. So if I'm building a rocket in my back garden, the UK government are going to well regulate that. But who enforces, who regulates international laws between governments involved in space? We often see international laws being disregarded by states on planet Earth. And only recently, I think last week, we heard about uh, an ex a new cluster of Chinese space debris that was heading towards Earth. So I wonder how well or to what extent these laws can actually be enforced in space and, and who does that? Yes, yeah, it's a great question. So there is a weak link in international law in general, which is enforcement. Um, so we have the International Court of Justice. If there's a dispute about a treaty obligation, countries can bring each other before the International Court of Justice, just as they can for a trade treaty or a maritime treaty. The same goes for the space treaties. Um, but we've never had that happen. There's never been a dispute brought before the, the International Court of Justice, which might demonstrate actually the success of the treaties. Everyone has adhered to them, but it also demonstrates that there have been a couple of instances like a piece of debris actually landing in Canada, which was a Soviet um, nuclear powered satellite also in the 1970s. And Canada triggered the treaty that applies that return and rescue agreement um, in which it also said that the responsible state would have to pay compensation if there's damage. So Canada used the diplomatic channels. They said, we want information about this technology because if it's nuclear powered, there may be environmental harm and we want $6 million for the cleanup. And the Soviets said, we're not gonna tell you anything about the technology and here's $3 million. And Canada said, okay. And so they never escalated that to a, to a dispute before the, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, although they could have. Um, so there is that enforcement mechanism. There is also um, really international law depends a lot on political will. So it probably in that case was that Canada just didn't think that it was worth the political cost of escalating that to a, to a case before the international court. Um, there are also, if there's anything that has to do with, for instance, breaching the obligation about not using force, not, not using space for aggressive purposes, well, that would fall very much under whole bodies of international law around use of force that could absolutely go before the ICJ, the international court, or if a state felt that it had, was suffering instant overwhelming um, um, use of force and had no other choice but to respond and retaliate with force using lawful self-defense, well, that would also be a lawful mechanism. So um, you kind of have to see space law as part of public international law in that way. There's, there are mechanisms there. The weakest link is enforcement because it requires political will. But if you're talking about debris, um, or the risks of collision. So space traffic management is a way that we talk about that, um, the responsibility of the impacts of debris. The problem is we don't have any binding law that puts obligations on anyone to, to do anything about it. We have these non-binding instruments that I mentioned. So non-binding instruments in international law still have a lot of political weight. Um, the debris mitigation guidelines uh, from 2007 that were adopted by the UN and also the 2019 uh, guidelines on the long-term sustainability of outer space activities. Those are non-binding guidelines, but they're adopted by the vast majority, or actually in the case of those long-term sustainability guidelines, it was a consensus adoption, encouraging states to be more proactive, to put things in place in their domestic licensing laws, requiring entities to think about the mitigating debris, um, reducing the risk of debris re-entering and harming someone, using 
uh, materials that are going to decompose over time, coming up with a plan to, to what are you going to do with your satellite at the end of its life, you know. So it's putting the onus in a non-binding sense on the states to then put things in place in their binding national laws. And then if something goes wrong, well, that comes up, that comes down to whatever the UK says its laws are that are applicable to UK entities. Um, so that what we don't have enough of, and there is a push towards it recently, is more internationally binding rules or mechanisms around debris and around what we're now starting to call responsible but norms of behaviour. And how are space laws formed? You mentioned the word consensus there. Is that is that generally how they're formed or is there more of a sort of a centralised policy that's being enforced on, on other states? Yeah, so those five binding treaties that we have, those core space treaties, they were all negotiated under the auspices of a body that's called the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUS for short. Uh, and COPUS was established, in fact, I think slightly less than one year after Sputnik was launched in 1957. So the world recognised the potential but also the threat of humans entering the space domain and the Soviets doing it at, at a very tense time in history. So the world under the UN established COPUS and COPUS is there to regulate peaceful uses of outer space. So those five treaties between 1967 and 1979, five treaties in 12 years is lightning speed for international lawmaking. Um, so they treaties, negotiations go through a lot of processes of, you know, edits and, and suggestions and political uh, compromises until they come up with a text that everyone agrees on and then they sign. And many countries have signed on to those treaties after after they were first negotiated, you can you could sign and join today. Um, UK UK was one of the original signatories to most of those treaties. Um, when it comes to but but kind of internationally, I think we could say for the last twenty years, there's just no appetite for new treaties of any sort, but particularly not for space. Um, we can't get treaties for climate change. We can't get new treaties. You know, it took twenty years to negotiate the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So. Treaty making is slow anyway. In the last 20 years, countries just don't seem to want to sign new treaties. Um, and on top of that, the US in particular has been explicitly against any new treaties for space. It likes ambiguity and therefore all of its allies and partners follow suit. So what we have instead is these non-binding instruments that I mentioned, and they can be developed in a range of ways. Um, those guidelines on long-term sustainability were adopted by COPUS, which always adopts things by consensus, which makes it slow, but it means we now have these 29 actually quite powerful statements that every member of COPUS, which I think is 90-odd countries, um, has agreed on. So that has real political, political power. And then there's other different kinds of guidelines we're starting to see emerge that, you know, consensus is nearly impossible, but... The movement around um, norms, rules and principles on responsible behaviour, that's a UN General Assembly process and the General Assembly doesn't operate by consensus, it operates by vote. So hopefully we're going to see some stronger statements coming out in the next couple of years around that. But it's kind of up to states how they want to implement them and whether they want to adhere to them if they're not binding. I wonder why there's been fewer space laws passed in, in recent times. Is this because during the Cold War, the US in particular were afraid of what the Soviets were up to, but now they're in a very powerful position and as countries are able to do more in space, technologically speaking, they want to be able to use that technology in ways that they see fit rather than being constrained? For sure. And there's a few other factors at play. Um, 
One of them is that, so during the Cold War, the predominant players then the most influential in everything, politics and, and international war at the time, were the Soviets and the US. So they had mutual um, suspicion and concern for each other's activities. They also very quickly realised through both having tested various um, nuclear explosions and other weapons in space, it's impossible to contain the impacts of those weapons and your own assets as well as those of your allies are also impacted. Like you're damaging the environment that you actually want to use. So very quickly there was an, a, an understanding between those two countries and uh, middle powers and also smaller nations who knew that they would like to access space in the future that what was needed was some ground rules. Um, and also politically what was driving those two players in particular was strategic restraint. So it was in their strategic interests to restrain themselves, to ensure that they could keep accessing this environment that was going to give them all these other advantages. Um, what we have today is uh, many, 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 many more countries are in space. So over 80 countries have some kind of space program. Um, uh, I think I'd be hard-pressed to point to any country that doesn't use space services in some way. And on top of that, it's highly commercialised. So we have different types of actors as well. In fact, in the 2020s, commercial actors are thoroughly dominating the space technologies, the space economy, the space domain, um, and therefore highly impacting space politics. <laughs> um, so much more complex um, political and economic landscape than in the 1960s. And add to that, as I mentioned, that there just isn't much of an appetite for treaty making in, in the 21st century anyway. Um, but what we do have on the other hand is a kind of pushback. In fact, many commercial actors want to have more clarity. They don't want to be more regulated, but they want to have more clarity about um, what their responsibilities are if it comes to debris, about what activities are or are not lawful. And that's very much the case with what we're going to see happen in the next five years with mining on the moon. What they can do with those, is that going to lead to other conflicts? Um, that, so commercial entities are actually, in some instances, starting to put in place best practices around, for instance, debris mitigation and, and design for demise of these kinds of things than countries are in their licensing laws. Um, we also have kind of um, conglomerates of a group of mix of stakeholders trying to come up with, uh, again, particularly in the case of space mining, um, the, the Hague um, uh, building blocks, they're called, is that's being put together by academics, by industry, by some lawyers to come up with a draft set of proposed guidelines. So not directed by states at all, but directed by these other stakeholders. And I think we're going to start to see more and more of these kind of multi-stakeholder arrangements. It's different ways of governing space. So there is a push to put more clarity in place. Um, but we have to deal with the geopolitics of the day and what, whatever the geopolitics are on Earth, they are the geopolitics of space. You mentioned, or you've, you have mentioned corporations a couple of times now. How easy is it to legislate against those? Um, how beholden is Elon Musk to the law, essentially? Uh, much more than he thinks he is. So <laughs> he's, he's, he's a great kind of, he's a sci-fi character unto himself. Um, so he is thoroughly beholden to every single US law. Um, he has to apply for multiple licenses whenever he wants to come up with a new launch vehicle. So he, the most recent one is Starship, which is meant to be a massive um, hu reusable human launch vehicle. Um, he and, and he's had some pushback from the regulators because of its environmental impact and safety concerns and because of where the launch site is, which is actually quite populated. And um, 
you know, every new technology that he tries out, he has to get a different set of licenses. The satellites that form part of Starlink also have a whole different bunch of licenses that have to be applied for. Uh, and he's thoroughly beholden to those to the laws that apply. He's had fines in some cases. He's had licenses um, rejected, and he's had to go back and make changes. Uh, I keep saying he. I mean SpaceX, of course. But um, but he himself, when I say he's a bit of a sci-fi character, because his whole vision is about getting humans to Mars, he um, at one stage put out a document. Anyone who wanted to be part of the Starship program, any company that wanted to be contributing technology or signing up in any sense, and I think he did the same with Starlink, he said, you have to sign this agreement that says you are not beholden to earthly laws. You will only have to adhere to future Martian laws. Um, that's that's a nice dream because the international, because the Outer Space Treaty says that states are responsible under international law for all activities under their jurisdiction, whether governmental or commercial. Um, so anything that Elon Musk or SpaceX does, which might break any international law, the US is responsible for. So you can bet your bottom dollar the US is going to keep him in line or keep the company in line. Um, you can't contract yourself out of international law. It doesn't work that way. And anyone who thinks that international law only applies to states and therefore not to companies doesn't understand how international law works through the state state responsibility mechanism. Well, that's good to know anyway. Just seem to be a bit of a space cowboy by design, I suspect. Indeed. <laughs> what are the current or predicted threats to space security and how able is international humanitarian law how able is it to mitigate these threats? Um, so the biggest threats are actually um, the ones that space operators face every day already. So they are things like cyber threats uh, and other forms of non-kinetic interference. So the best way to think of a space system is it's made up of, well, four segments. I used to say three. It's made up of um, the space asset, so the spacecraft or a satellite, the ground station, because every satellite needs to communicate with the ground station, and if it's a space vehicle, it still needs to have a launch or a landing site. And then the link between them, so some form of communication link or data link between them. So you could add to those three, actually, the fourth segment, which is humans. So we are the users, the operators, the beneficiaries, and therefore part of the space system. Um, and the biggest threats to that space system are actually to the link in between or to the ground station rather than to the space-based assets themselves. Um, so there are some space-based threats. There are, um, you know, China, Russia, and the US are still the biggest players. They're all testing out um, space-based counter-space technologies, so the ability to um, manoeuvre and sidle up next to a satellite. Um, you know, as we're seeing technologies developed to um repair a, a satellite on, on orbit or to, to refuel it, which would extend its life, that technology, of course, can be repurposed to interfere with a, a satellite. So there are some space-based threats, um, but the bigger threats are either cyber threats to the command and control or the operations. Um, if it's an Earth observation satellite, the ability to temporarily dazzle the observation instrumentation or permanently blind it. Um, if it is some kind of um, data or communication satellite, the ability to um, spoof or jam that signal the way that you might spoof or jam a radio signal, send a false signal. Um, and then that's been going on, for instance, in the Ukraine at the moment. Earth observation data has been thoroughly critical to the Ukraine and to um, the Russian um, armies and operations. 
Uh, and there have been some commercial operators offering data for free to Ukraine. But there's a huge risk of can you validate the accuracy of that data? Has there been some interference in it? Um, you know, there are often interferences with communications uh, and particularly Earth observation uh, satellites. So those kinds of threats are the key kinds of threats that we need to be agile in responding to and understanding how to prevent or deter um, or, or, you know, or to utilise ourselves against adversaries, right? Um, and then there are also some ground-based threats. So you could also attack a ground station. Um, you could also, there are some anti-satellite direct ascent weapons that have been tested. So China in 2007, the US in 2008, India in 2019, and then Russia in 2021. They've all tested successfully the ability to shoot a missile at one of their own satellites and destroy it in orbit. The problem with uh, those direct ascent anti-satellite weapons or ASATs is that they, they create debris and debris is our biggest threat in the space environment, actually. Um, and it can't be contained and it gets kicked up into other orbits, orbital trajectories and it stays there for months or in some cases decades. So the US very recently made a commitment never to, never again to test a direct ascent ASAT. Canada and New Zealand have joined it. I hope to see many, many other countries make that same commitment because that is a binding commitment under international law. They're making a unilateral statement that they can be held to account for under international law. And it's actually a super easy commitment to make. You're not promising not to develop a capability. You're promising never to test something that's going to create debris, which is just a dumb thing to do. Um, so that is a threat, but actually a much smaller threat than those non-kinetic or temporary reversible kind of, kind of interferences. Um, and then you asked how IHL is equipped to deal with that. Um, IHL being International Humanitarian Law or Laws of Unconflict. So there's kind of two bodies of law to think about. One is actually the law on the use of force. And that determines, because force is outlawed by the UN Charter, um, and what we've seen the Russians do in Ukraine is, is an unlawful use of force. It's aggression. Um, I don't hesitate to say that that's what the US did in Iraq as well in 2002, an unlawful use of aggression, use of force. And that body of law triggers all sorts of other things. So we have an unlawful aggressor, you could bring them before the International Court of Justice, but if you're still in a conflict, that's not gonna get you very far. Um, but it also then brings you um, into the, past the threshold of, of, um, of force and very quickly into the threshold of armed conflict. And that's when the body of law around the laws of armed conflict applies. So thankfully we don't have a conflict in space, but if space assets are being targeted during a conflict, which they already have been and they still are being, states or operators or commanders have to adhere to the rules that say things like, you must distinguish between military objectives and civilian objects. You cannot target, for example, a school or a hospital. Um, so you therefore cannot target a satellite that is providing um, key civilian um, services or that would damage a school or a hospital if, if you took it out as a satellite. Um, the challenge is, and let me say quickly, of course, sometimes those things happen and they are called war crimes. So the law can't necessarily prevent them from happening. It does restrain states. The biggest um, utility of these laws is reciprocity. So most of the time, most parties to a conflict adhere to most of those laws because it's in their interest to do so because they know that then their own citizens and combatants will be treated in the same way according to those rules. But sometimes war crimes happen. So the laws can't prevent bad actors from doing bad things, but it does place restraints around it that most parties do respect. Um, what we're seeing in space is it's difficult to clarify because there's so many satellites that are dual use that provide 
One satellite will provide communications or earth observation or navigation, both for you and I and for the military, or both for you and I saying our civilian lives, I should say, um, and, and for military operations. So it's very hard to make that distinction. And then if you do make that distinction, you still have to apply the principle of um, proportionality. Um, and I've written various things in which I argue in space, proportionality actually needs to weigh heavier because of the potential impact on civilians um, and on neutral states, because that one satellite might be providing to multiple clients from multiple countries. Um, so you really have to consider whatever military advantage you may gain from targeting a satellite, even if you're just taking it out temporarily with a non-kinetic means, you really have to calculate very carefully what the knock-on effects are going to be for other users. And if that's disproportionate, which it may be very quickly, then you can no longer target that satellite or that space system. Um, and those that they might sound like kind of, you know, aspirational principles, but they really do guide commanding decisions because otherwise they will have been ordering a walk home. It really does sound like if you, if you were to, especially with an anti-satellite missile, if you were to take out a satellite, that would be akin to a war crime. Is there any scenario where that wouldn't be a war crime? Um, so I think a direct ascent to ASAT, because of the debris it's, it's going to create, um, would... Well, that would actually that would actually breach another norm of um, uh, of laws of armed conflict, which is you can't do anything that's either going to modify the environment or create long-term severe and widespread damage. And if you create debris in orbit, you've created long-term severe and widespread damage. So that is unlawful in and of itself. Um, whether or not a, a direct ascent ASAT is committing a war crime in another sense would depend on whether there were actual. Um, disproportionate effects or who got impacted by that debris. But these other kinds of targeting a satellite, um, so if they're temporary or reversible means, you, you still have to do that proportionality calculus. And, and that's going to be very difficult to do unless the operators themselves, so someone's made this very interesting suggestion to me recently, which is might it be useful if the commercial operators would have put into the public domain information about who they're servicing, who uses their um, their space-based services and how and what kind of key things depend on it. I mean, it's very different if you are providing a service that um, is part of a health system or that operates um, dikes and dams and, you know, um, than if it's providing, I don't know, just, just a telecommunications, which may well be a lawful target, right, even if it's also for civilian purposes. If the military advantage is sufficient, and there's no disproportionate knock-on effects that we will use telecommunications temporarily, that might be a lawful target. But if the commercial operators were putting into the public domain information about how their services are used, that might actually be a very useful tool to help determine, well, this actually is not a lawful target. We actually have to avoid it. Um, so those decisions are being made all the time by commanders and operators in armed conflict situations when they want to look at can they target a bridge, can they target a communication centre or an, you know, an energy centre where electricity is made that may have military advantage, what are the effects going to be for the civilian population. Those kind of analyses are being made all the time. The laws of armed conflict are legal principles that get applied to new sets of facts each time again. And in space, it's just a very specific set of facts so each and every targeting decision would have to be made with those principles every time over and over again. So it's less on how I'm targeting the satellite. It's, it's entirely dependent on what the satellite's actually doing, what's its purpose. How easy is it for an adversary to know that in advance of an attack? 
Yeah, there's a few ways. So those registration conventions that are, that are um, obligatory under the registration convention, um, particularly what's registered with the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs in that international registry, that's important. Although that's, you know, the UN itself has said it's at about an 80% accuracy. It knows that there are more launches than, than are actually being registered. Um, and the kind of information that gets registered is actually fairly limited. It's a bit of telemetry. It's a little bit about the orbital um Path that it's on and its attitude and it's you know it's a, it's more of a space traffic management registry than it is about the actual capability, but a lot can be gleaned from from that telemetry or from the activities. You can tell whether a satellite is observing or telecommunications or um, uh, navigation or you know any other number of applications. And most of the time. We know, well, we know where almost every single satellite belongs to. Is it a company? Is it a country? There is a fair bit of information out there. Some of it is simply public domain. In fact, there are a few people who keep um, as semi-professional hobbies uh, websites and Twitter feeds that have more up-to-date accurate information than any country or, or the UN. Um, and because that's in the public domain, all of that stuff can be scraped. And so it's actually not that difficult to identify uh, who's operating it, to what purpose, and whether it's supplying to military and or civilian. Um, but I think it gets difficult when you have multiple transponders on a single satellite doing multiple different things. It, it becomes very hard to identify whether this is a lawful target or not. With all of these satellites in space, all of these extra assets in space belonging to various states and, and companies, is it becoming easier or harder to regulate space activity and uphold space laws? That's a great question. I think it's getting harder, but I also have some hope, she says cautiously, <laughs> um, that there is more awareness today than there was even five years ago of how critical the space domain is and how busy it is. Um, and therefore, there is starting to be a more of a political will to, to do something about this. So, um, you know, the biggest, when you ask me what the biggest threats are, and I talked a little bit about those the kind of deliberate interferences. And I said very briefly, actually, debris is our biggest threat. But really, that has to be our, our key concern. So there's a few buzzwords about space that, you know, interact with each other. So long-term sustainability is one of them. We are so dependent on space-based technologies for our 21st century lives that we have to think about the long-term sustainability of the space environment. It's highly, highly congested. Um, you know, and it's going to become more congested in the next five and 10 years. And that's going to make space traffic management and debris mitigation really, really complex and really problematic. So there is a real push from space agencies around the world and from countries. In fact, the UK is being the lead space diplomat at the moment in the world around long-term sustainability and, and space traffic management and also around um, responsible norms to kind of de-escalate the, the military threats in space. Um, so there is, there is more political will to get stuff done. And so I think we're going to see more um, interagency agreements so between space agencies and more domestic laws. Uh, we also have a thing called a space sustainability rating that's just recently been launched through the World Economic Forum. That's going to give a you know, five, four, three or two star rating to, a, to companies based on how sustainable their operations are. Um, so, so we're going to see more stuff happening through these non-binding mechanisms and then through domestic law. Uh, and then on the military threat side or the, the kind of counter space threats that we have to think about in a security sense, um, the UN's General Assembly has set up this um, open-ended working group 
whose mandate it is to look at reducing threats in space through norms, rules and principles on responsible behaviours. So very long title, diplomatic language, every single word has a history embedded in it, but the point is we've had decades of failures around arms control, treaties in space, um, and so in fact the UK led the, the fray on that. They sponsored this um, resolution in 2020 that was adopted by near consensus by the General Assembly to say this is what we need to put on the agenda. We need to stop debating over whether we're going to have a treaty or how to define a space weapon or, you know, who's who, which country is sponsoring it and therefore a political reason not to support it, and that's what's been going on. And they said let's put it in the General Assembly. Let's set up an open-ended working group, which has met once in 2022. It's going to meet in September 2022 and then twice in 2023. And there's already some very strong statements, including the US moratorium and the Canadian one about not testing ASETs that were timed around that, that very first meeting. There's been strong statements coming up by countries tabling explicit political but also now legally binding statements about what they consider to be red lines of responsible or irresponsible behaviour in space. So I think there is a lot of movement, very positive movement around space governance that's not necessarily going to translate to more binding treaties or laws, but it is going to make a huge difference in terms of actual behaviours and actual threats. And hopefully we'll see a fair amount of that trickle down into national policies, strategies and, and national laws as well. That's a really positive note to end on. So thank you very much for coming on the show. That's been a really useful and enjoyable discussion. And I've certainly learned a lot about space law. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Dr. Steer for coming on the show. That was a fantastic overview of IHL and space operations. If you enjoyed listening to this, do check out our other episodes on Space Power and please like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time for another episode of Air Power and International Security.